Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. So today we have a very special guest. We've got Jeffrey Wallace, author of the book A Voice From Inside, Notes on Religious Trauma in a Captive Organisation. Jeff identifies himself as a PIMO, Jehovah's Witness, that is, of course, physically in, mentally out. Hence, Jeff writes and appears under a pseudonym. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Celine. Great to have you on the show. Um, so I've literally just finished your book. I went on holiday and um, spent much of it reading your book, which was great. I found the book absolutely compelling. Um, really well researched and really well written, um, and I would say before we start, it is a must a must read for JWs, ex JWs, and indeed anyone with an interest in the subject of high control and high demand groups. So, you know, congratulations on it. It's a great book. So yeah, thanks so much. Um, so one of the obvious themes of the book is that of captivity. Uh, and you use that term, a captive organization, quite a lot. Could you tell us where this comes from and why you see it as so appropriate for Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, well, it comes from the um, Australia, Australian Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse uh, and the uh, their investigation into Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, the prosecutor assisting the royal government was Angus Stewart, and he used that expression. And there was a uh, a period in the proceeding, proceedings when he was, you know, really asking Jeffrey Jackson, you know, to expound upon disfellowshipping, to d- expound upon disassociation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he used that expression, captive organization. Would you agree that this makes your organization a captive organization? And that was very new to me. Um, so obviously growing up as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, you hear, you know, accusations of being a cult, and uh, you're aware of perhaps what outsiders and ex-members say about Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but captive organization, I think, really cut through a lot of the discussion oh. and really addressed the topic that, that was of interest to me um, coming out of disillusionment and still finding uh, that I was captive in some sense uh, socially. Mm. Yeah, because I thought it was really interesting um, and very accurate as a term um, because he he really, if anyone's not watched the the Australian Royal Commission, obviously it's on YouTube. Anybody can watch that, and um, you know I think it's a fascinating watch. And what Angus Stewart is doing there is is, is applying logic, isn't he? Is is sort of saying to the member of the governing body there, you know, that actually people who maybe have been victims of sexual abuse or in other situations find themselves in a captive situation 
Um, so what what was what was he trying to say there in your view? What was the the kind of logic behind what he was saying? Yeah, and he was talking. I mean, it is in the context of child sexual abuse. So um, he really paints this picture of how somebody who uh, faced abuse in the organization um, would then have this very difficult decision: Do I leave the organization so that I can uh, protect myself from my abuser, who perhaps remains if deemed repentant? Um, or do I leave the organization and face shunning from my family and friends? So it's it's particularly, um, you know, the word that Stuart uses is cruel uh, to mm. put somebody to that decision. Um, yeah. And so that that's even heightened in its significance when you're talking about child sexual abuse and the trauma involved there and protecting young ones. Um, and in a sense, it is something that happens to uh, PIMOs or, or any mm. disillusioned Jehovah's Witness. This is somebody who's baptized into the organization. They're in a sort of like um, religious, spiritual like contract with the organization that, um, com- you know, uh, sort of obliges them to stay or else face shunning by their family. And so it does it does create a captivity there. Because mm. Jackson's... Um... A counter was that you know you, you can leave any time Jehovah's mm-hmm. Witnesses are allowed to to leave. Um, obviously, as an ex JW myself, I I have a wry smile when I hear that. I mean, of course, he is right, mm-hmm. but it comes at a cost, doesn't it? That's right. And you know the way that that is addressed, uh, for example, in the official literature, is that um, you know some people are removed uh, disciplinarily, and then others are weak in their faith, and they may become inactive for a time, right? So um, it's spun that way that individuals may just go their way because they're weak in faith. But the reality is that there are implications of the judicial arrangement, the authoritarian arrangement exists. And, um, you know, even if somebody does uh, sort of go inactive, meaning that they stop being actively participant in the uh, organization, at the meetings, et cetera, um, they still can be called to account for behaviors that become known that are in violation. Um, and also because of the deep fear of outsiders, of apostates, um, you know, family members who are still caught in that psychological captivity uh, could still take a, an extremely strong reactive stance uh, if they did come to find that there was a doctrinal disagreement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you make that point really, really clear in, in your book. It's um, So I think you set it up really, really well. So yes, absolutely. This is a this is a captive organization. I mean, even the cover of the book, I, I'm guessing, I don't know whether you had anything to do with that, but it's kind of got a, a prison motif there for me. Yeah, I didn't catch that. Um, the no. designer, you know, he read the book and I think he yeah. did a great job at yeah. capturing that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you, you, um, you, you, in your book, you actually creates a really interesting narrative about how organizations kind of have various choices along the way as they develop. um, There's kind of moments where they can choose to adapt to the world in which they operate, the social culture in which they operate, or they can choose to double down on that. I thought it was really interesting analysis. Could you talk a little bit more about that and what you've observed with that? Yeah, when, when you look, you know, you retrace the history of the organization, you see that there were these times in the rhetoric where they became more polarized, they became more separate from mainstream Christianity. So the Adventist movement uh, in Christianity in the United States, mid 1800s, was affecting a lot of people in a lot of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, as an insider Jehovah's Witness, you don't 
get that perspective. But when, when you learn a little bit more about the history of Christianity in the United States, you realize this was a broader movement. Um, but as time went on, a lot of these groups sort of moderated themselves and came into the more progressive elements of Christianity that we see today. Jehovah's Witnesses didn't do that. Um, and it's what philosophers call this retraction into fundamentalism. So when faced with the challenges of pluralism and, and like moral pluralism of different cultures, which of course happens as technology increases, instead of you know, loosening the bounds of the group, they retract into fundamentalism. They double down on beliefs and they make them even more rigid. And so there were some mo moments in the you know, history of Jehovah's Witnesses where they you know, chose to sort of take that, that shrinking back, you know, and, um, you know, a couple, couple classic moments. Um, 1938 is one, uh, the series of articles called organization, um, where it was this bringing in of all the disparate congregations into centralized oversight in New York and this, and the signing of a, basically a plea of allegiance, the congregations <laughs> were offered to make, um, real, a real shift in the overall, um, you, you know, authoritarian nature of the organization. Yeah, that was, that was really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was just thinking as well in terms of the um, feeling captive thing as, as well, back to what when we spoke to uh, Lloyd Evans about uh, fading as well, in that even if you, so some people try and try fading, obviously there's kind of the choice of do I make a, make a statement and, choose to sort of send a letter of disassociation or do I fade um and if you if you fade you're still beholden potentially to all these rules I remember you know someone we knew running around hiding Christmas trees when someone was coming around <laughs> because you know that's right you are still beholden so I think to suggest that yeah you can just leave any time you you, mm. you can leave but have you have you left in all in all ways you know uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's difficult, I think, when you are really um, betrothed with the doctrine and the organization to have that, you know, to really have that empathy for outsiders, to have that experience, you know, sort of experiential, um, you know, of the emotions and the social pressure, what it would feel like to put yourself in the shoes of an ex-member, I think, as members, uh, you know, devout members, they don't do that. Like, th there is a... a an expansive love for everybody that they're preaching to, but the line is drawn so, um, so hard when it comes to individuals who disagree doctrinally yes. um, with ex members. Yeah. So this, you know, fading can happen. I think that's probably, you know, for intimate family members, you know, you can sort of <laughs> increase their tolerance for your uh, non activity so that they can ease into this new version of who you are. But again, there's this fear of the judicial arrangement that can still raise its ugly head. And particularly if somebody who fades decides to have any sort of a public presence, whether that's creatively, whether that's um, activism or any other thing that would bring them into the limelight, as soon as they speak in objection to those laws, there's the chance that they could, they could still be affected by it. Yeah, I mean that's um, it's been twenty five years really since uh, before I felt um, comfortable to talk. I mean that is my journey really, um, and it, it it's taken a long time for me to be willing to talk 
about my experiences because of that very reason. And, yeah. and you know, you you do feel um, it is a sort of double bind because you 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 want to be honest, but on the other hand, as soon as you're asked questions. So what, why are you not coming anymore, Stephen? You know, what, what's the matter? Mm. What's the problem? You know, you, you know, that's a dangerous <laughs> question. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You simply cannot answer that question and, and get away with it. Yeah. I was going to say the problem with that too. I think a lot of times people will use self-effacing um, uh, responses to that, that don't protect their personal uh, sort of dignity. So yeah. they'll blame it on health. Uh, or they'll yes. blame it on uh, some other sort of, you know, issue or they'll blame it on a doubt. And perhaps there is no doubt. Perhaps there is certainty at that point that it's not something that I want to do. But we, you know, there are, are tricks that, you know, maybe you have to play to, mm. to maintain that just so that you don't cross any lines with the people that you're trying to maintain relationships with. I mean, I've just had a thought. I'm not sure what, I mean, both of you think about this in terms of, we've talked a little bit on the podcast before about, people getting baptized much younger. Um, I mean, what do you think of that playing into, you know, this issue of be being held sort of captive? So you're making this agreement much younger mm. yeah. um, now that you are dedicating your entire life and spiritual life forever and ever mm -hmm. um, when you're not even old enough to do most things legally. Because, mm. I mean, some of them are like, I mean, I know lots of people who have been eight and younger getting baptized I mean, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big problem because the question is, have they developed psychologically or even neurologically mm. to be able to make that decision? I was recently listening to um, Robert Sapolsky, who is the neurobiologist. He's talking about behavior and how the full development of the frontal cortex, which is this ability to regulate your behavior and make, you know, forward thinking decisions really doesn't come into maturation until maybe, uh, you know, 25 years of age mm. or so. So, you know, there's mm. this impulsivity that is tied up with youth. And so when you think of that impulsivity and how that can affect uh, young ones who may make a decision to be baptized in a moment of religious zealotry, this can affect their entire life. And, you know, in, in a sense can, can create these extremely rigid patterns of emotion um, that come from the uh, paternalistic atmosphere, the threat of judicial uh, action and disfellowshipping and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I, you know, I just recently heard of, of a seven-year-old, you know, and, and a lot of times in the organization, when somebody that young takes a stand for Jehovah, um, it's praised. It's, mm. you know, it shows that they've sort of reached, quote unquote, spiritual maturity before they, uh, you know, earlier than most, perhaps. Yes. Um, but yeah. in reality, it's, it's a danger to them. Yeah, it's something that um, I mean. Obviously, I've been left quite a long time now. But when I was growing up, it was it was quite unusual to have children that young being baptized. It was very unusual. You might get the odd fifteen year old, maybe the odd fourteen year old. But I was sixteen. Most of my friends were around that same age, and I, I agree with you. It's still too young, but at least you know there's some level of maturity there. But so. Uh, yeah, and it certainly wasn't encouraged. I mean, now it seems to be encouraged from the platform, you know, to actually get baptized younger and younger. Yeah, and there's some clauses in the elders' manual that indicate, you know, you do need to sort of have parental approval. And mm -hmm. so the, you know, for example, quote unquote, the head of the 
the head of the family, spiritual head of the family, which mm-hmm. according to JW doctrine is the husband or the father, you know, if he is not convinced of the spiritual maturity of the child, then elders don't press, allow him to weigh in. So there is, you know, some, there's that clause there in the elder's manual. Um, so, you know, I think for individuals who are aware of the implications of baptism, you know, parents, mm-hmm. at least that's there. But the problem is many are not aware of those implications. Some of these fathers are even serving as elders. And so they're mm-hmm. going to sign on that, sign off on that. Yeah. Um, which can have a big impact, lifelong impact. Absolutely. Could you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your journey from mentally in then to mentally out, uh, please, Jeff? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I like to talk about because um, in terms of religious trauma, the concept of religious trauma, because that extends beyond Jehovah's Witnesses. um, And the, what I found therapeutically helpful in the writings about religious trauma extended to just fundamentalist religions in general, this idea that when this framework of cognitive schemas just dissolves on you or the, the old Jenga metaphor, when you pull out that bottom rung of the Jenga tower, the whole thing can fall down. And that can be an index trauma. That can be the event that triggers post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And Marlene Winnell, who talks about religious trauma, also compares it to um, CPTSD, complex PTSD, where you may have been having um, ongoing authoritarian abuse in a totalist environment. sort of this culmination of index traumas that when you come out of illusionment, you know, you have all the symptoms of PTSD, um, panic attacks, anxiety, depression, uh, intrusive thoughts, suicidal ideation, Mm. um, addiction to drugs and sleep disturbances, all those classic PTSD symptoms. So, um, you know, that was my experience Mm -hmm. and I was unprepared for that, you know, um, in the organization, you kind of have this awareness of what's going on on the outside. You know, you, you can get the sense of the quote unquote apostate views and, and the, the arguments against Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, you know, but this was very, uh, I just was unprepared for this sort of uh, experience where when the indoctrination broke down, uh, there was demonstrative mental health, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, challenges. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I knew needed to be sp- spoken out about because mm-hmm. it, you know, as I do in the book, I tie that to the totalist environment and mm-hmm. PTSD research has in fact tied PTSD to this totalist abuse and coming out of it. Um, something that therapists needs to need to know. And you describe a kind of chronic situation, don't you? Um, so unlike perhaps a traditional view of PTSD might be uh, perhaps in a war situation or something, you know, it happens afterwards. Of course, if you're still in that um, abusive organization, you might still be experiencing that PTSD whilst you're still in it. So mm-hmm. it becomes like a chronic condition. I think you describe it in those terms, really. Yeah, like like this re-triggering, you know, every yeah. time you have you feel compelled to go to uh, a meeting or what have you, it can kind of be re-triggering. And, mm. you know, I talk in the book also about moral injury PTSD, which I think is um, important to keep in mind with individuals involved in new religious movements is that you may feel ethically culpable 
in what's going on with the organization, particularly if, if you've been an elder or if you have been a regular pioneer or somebody who's brought people into the organization and, and made them part of that ar- uh, arrangement. Mm-hmm. Now there's this gasp mm-hmm. of culpability in something that is eth- ethically questionable. Mm-hmm. And similar to others who have been involved in um, activity, maybe violent activity mm-hmm. with wars, even when not threatened by death themselves, mm-hmm. if they're sort of culpable in the taking of human life, et cetera, they experience this, this moral injury PTSD. So I think that is definitely a factor there. Um, not only the fear of ostracism and shunning, et cetera, but also this awakening to how you have been involved in uh, human suffering, contributing to human suffering. Yeah, uh, obviously, I don't want to take you to places you don't want to go. Um, but has that is that something that has um, affected you? Um, sort of thinking about what you've done in the past, thinking you've been doing the right thing, and then having to come to terms with that is that is that an experience you you're able to sort of talk about? Uh, yeah, it's d- definitely something that happened to me, um, and it is. Uh, it, it is difficult to come to terms with that because mm. if you, if you served as an elder and I know I have, you know, mm. a disfellowship people, not only separated family members, children from family, but also, as I explained in the book, put my arm around the mother whose daughter I disfellowshipped and convinced her as she was in tears over losing her child, mm. that she was doing the right thing by God's standards and that her loyalty is appreciated by Jehovah God and his organization. Mm. Um, so not only involved in this judicial action, but in the, um, sort of, uh, if you want to call it manipulation or this, this sort of pseudo therapizing of the negative response to that, not, Mm. not allowing people to grieve for, for what you've done. So, um, yeah, there's a strong, there's a strong tug, I think, for the newly disillusioned Jehovah's Witness to right mm. some of those wrongs. Yeah, and um, th- it can it can be really traumatic for people. Mm. Yeah, I'll it was that. for me. It was for me. Sure. Yeah, it was. It's that empathy. You think, you know, mm. exactly what am I involved in? How how are lives affected here? Yeah, the blood doctrine, shunning, and suicide. Mm. Um, if I was feeling suicidal, <laughs> which I was, because of my situation, mm. then all of a sudden. I understood those news reports that I had been dismissive of that talked about suicide as it relates to shunning. Um, I experienced it firsthand and there was no longer any denying of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I, I fortunately I, I never made the dizzy heights of, um, of elder. Um, <laughs> and I was a rubbish pioneer because I didn't bring anybody in. Um, but I think you still do think about, Things like, you know, literally walking past people in the street, um, you know, people that I would have considered friends and ignoring them. Um, yeah. And you, you, obviously you think about that, don't you? And um, yeah. I, I guess anger is the other natural response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you feel guilty, but then you feel angry at the organization that's that's kind of made you do that or responsible. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah that's the betrayal trauma element. Uh, that goes into there with the PTSD mm. and Marlene Winnell talks about this in religious trauma. Um, you've been betrayed. 
So uh, we know that misinformation, anybody that's been associated, and I, I say we, I, I assume a lot of your listeners are XJWs, yeah, but yeah. uh, they're aware of that misinformation and how betrayed you feel mm-hmm. when you've given your life to an organization who did not give you the whole truth. Not only that, but muscled out other opinions mm-hmm. and, and threatened and made them seem very threatening yeah, you, you feel very betrayed and, and anger is an absolutely natural mm. response to that. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking too about something that we all sort of are culpable is that atmosphere of self-policing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's very coercive too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. and then you realize, well, it's like, you know, r- really all the kind of all the rank and file of, you know, you can feel like, oh, wow, I, I had a share in that too. Mm. Not to, you know, we're not trying to make ourselves feel guilty, but that can be part of the, the awakening process. I think, I think so, you know, and, and it, it, it can have different effects. It can have a moderating effect too on the way that, that you see other current Jehovah's Witnesses. So, you know, I know people that will, although I'm not disfellowshipped, I've been gone a long time, um, you know, uh, who knows, but I, I think it's unlikely that they're going to come after me after 25 years, mm-hmm. but you know, um, but I think, um, I know of people, I won't get too detailed, but I know of people that will not want to associate with us because of where I stand, despite the fact I've not been his fellowship. So I guess we call that shot soft shunning sometimes when, mm. when, you know, you, and I think to myself, that makes me angry sometimes because it's people that I love. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I can think to myself, I would probably do exactly the same thing. Um, and I guess that's that helps to understand where mm-hmm. other Jehovah's Witnesses are coming from. You know, they're yeah. essentially doing what they think is right. And that's mm-hmm. heartbreaking actually for them too, really. Yeah, that's that's part of it. You know, when when somebody is disfellowshipped, and, you know, they face that excruciating pain of being separated from their family and social group completely. Um, and then the remaining members, too, may suffer in silence yeah. as they grieve their lost family member or perhaps not even grieve because they're trying to support a God-inspired arrangement. Yeah, and so there's a lot of unspoken, undealt with grief. Um, mm. It's very much like losing somebody to death when you have to just cut off contact mm. completely. The What Should I Think About podcast has been going now since around November 2020, and we've really enjoyed doing it. We release at least two shows a week. It's about eight a month, of course, with Sunday being an interview and Wednesday being our discussion about a new subject each week. We love you, our listeners, and we really value the interaction we have with you. And we want to keep the podcast going. Currently, I pretty much work on the podcast full time, researching topics, booking guests, recording and editing, with Celine working part time, doing very much the same things. So in order for us to keep going and continue to improve, we've reached that point in the life of a podcast where we have to make some decisions about how we support it financially. Most podcasts have ads, either that are delivered by the podcast hosts or from third parties that interrupt the show. We really don't want to do that. We want to keep the What Should I Think About podcast ad-free 
So we're going to try something different to most podcasts. We'd like to ask you if you think this podcast is worth a pound or a dollar fifty or euro twenty a month or whatever the equivalent is in your own currency. If you think it's worth that, we'd like to invite you to become a member or a patron for just that. So how we're doing it is we're flattening out our tiers on Patreon to just our single lowest tier. For those patrons, not only will you get the two public podcasts a week, but you'll also get exclusive video each month, bonus content of at least one a month and probably more, and exclusive access to the What Should I Think About Facebook private group, where you can contribute to our Ask Us Anything episodes coming up soon and talk about the show. We've got other plans too that will make your pound or $1.50 even better value. We can't say too much about that yet. We really want to make access to this community possible to everyone, and we think this minimal amount will do that, while providing the show with a small income in order for us to keep going. So the next few weeks, we'll be flattening out our tiers on Patreon and providing all benefits through the lowest tier, currently known as loss aversion, for just a pound or its equivalent in your own currency. So please consider being part of our community. Thank you. The link to our Patreon page can be found in the show notes. I'm surprised we've never um, talked about the Panopticon before, actually. Yeah, it's been on my mind. I was thinking like, <laughs> yeah. ah, the Panopticon. Yeah. It's just What's been, this? It's, um, it's like a... Um, so originally it comes from this idea of like having a prison where you you put the guards in the middle and then um, so it the prisoners can't see when you're being watched but therefore you feel like you could be being watched at any time so you're always being watched effectively Uh, um um, jeff you need to look this up you'd be absolutely fascinated by this so um it's it's uh it's a design of a prison that is designed specifically so that you think you're being watched all the time, mm. um, but you don't know for sure. And in a way, modern society is becoming a lot like uh, a modern panopticon. <laughs> um, mm. But Jehovah's Witnesses are very much like that. And the organization is like that. And in fact, I think um, one of our guests did describe where you become your own um, panopticon or you become your own watcher, essentially, essentially, because of course you're 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 thinking about your own sins and your own weaknesses and so on. And again, you talk about this in your in your book. I think you talk about triple, um, uh, yeah, tri- triple faceted stigma. That's the one. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the one. And that came a little bit from Yanya Lalich's research. Hmm. Um, she was talking about in a paper in 2010 LGBTQ Jehovah's Witnesses who um, they feel, you know, th- they still identify with their religious community. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that they're in and they hate where they're at. They, they very much feel connected to their God, Jehovah, who is owned by the organization that they live in. Yeah. Um, but they are reckoning with their sexual identity. So they have this stigma from the outside because everybody knows they're part of a cult and Jehovah's Witnesses are very aware of, of what people say about them. Mm. So there's a sort of understanding that people on the outside may judge them for who they are, even if it's not explicit, they, they, they know it subconsciously. Mm. Um, so there's that stigma. And then there's the stigma of 
being inside and being gay and knowing that that is extremely, you know, vilified in the rhetoric. And then there's also the internal stigmatization, which is, you know, I'm going against my morals here because these have been inculcated in me. So, and, and it's their spiritual identity. Mm-hmm. So um, I extend that to the PMO experience who, you know, may, they may dissent for intellectual or ethical reasons. Um, and the, the psychological, you know, conflict there where mm-hmm. you have nowhere to go. And that's the struggle I think with the mental health challenges, the risks of PTSD is that um, they're afraid to go outside, afraid to go inside. And that is terribly lonely and frightening. Hmm. Yeah, um, there's there's quite a, oh, so much I really want to talk to you about. Um, I, I I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. Maybe maybe we get you back again if you're if you're willing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Great. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I think is obviously very very important about your book because it is the whole perspective of your book is life on the inside. So mm-hmm. you are taking a very clear PMO stance and you're saying, you know, lots of people have talked about the subject from the inside and from the out or from the outside, let's say ex JWs, ex religious members, and then academics and so on. But you're looking at it from a very specific sp- perspective, which I think is fascinating. Can you tell us some sort of specific challenges then that you think are important for us to understand about being PMO. So what is it that you want to tell people about being PMO? Well, I think the fact that PMO is a thing, which of course I discovered on the internet post disillusionment, like, wow, people are using this hashtag. Mm. It gives credence to the fact that there's captivity here. Why Mm. would somebody be physically in and when they're mentally out, even if it is for just a phase, why would that even exist? Well, that causes you to dig deeper and say, well, you know, it just gives evidence to that accusation of, of captivity. Mm. Um, and, and the big thing is, is the stigma. The, the big thing is the fear, carrying the fear of knowing that you have this internal. Um, so in the theories of stigma that I use, Irving Goffman's studies and his theory of how you may not be overtly stigmatized, but you know that you are stigmatizable. There's something about your personality that if shown to others would get you ostracized. Mm. And so that's what the PMO carries. Um, they know that in their day-to-day life, they have the, they run the risk of being completely cut off. And, and so they're, they could be dealing with the, the trauma of losing their religious faith and the grief that goes along with the crisis of faith, and then also face this ongoing threat to, to who they are. So, um, that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about mental health for those individuals that they are able to plot their way to a place of genuine existence. And, um, of course that will look different for each individual. And when it comes to leaning into one's individuality, as opposed to being part of this collective consciousness, it's important that they find where that is for them and that, therapists and mental health professionals, you know, help them to find what that looks like for them. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, so that's the concerns, but you know, in terms of the PMO experience, I think that there are also others and I don't know how many who, you know, just reconcile some of this, they, they carry on perhaps in silence and they may draw the line in themselves as the things they will and won't do. Hmm. Um, 
you know, and I, I don't have a pulse on exactly how many people are in that situation, but particularly I, I am concerned about disempowered individuals. So children that do not yet have financial independence, um, uh, perhaps wives who are disempowered in the organization because their submissive role um, may not have uh, financial independence and may be disempowered. Um, so those individuals may find it even harder to leave and, yeah. and really suffer in silence. Mm. Yeah. But in terms of the PMO experience on the day to day, you know, you, you, you make, you make do and you learn. I mean, I talk in the book about um, minority influence uh, so Sergei Moscovici's studies about, uh, you know, how to affect change in the minds of others without overtly disagreeing with them. And um, some of that's really fascinating. Another thing that helps me is just, you know, be, being a bit of the researcher and, and watching, you know, exactly what is happening with the individuals that I'm around, what is happening in me, what is my emotional experience, how does one affect the other? Um, has been very enlightening for me, not just in this organization, but understanding social dynamics and power beyond it. It's interesting. So, I mean, to be fair, um, didn't use this term for it before, but you, I guess, kind of considered being PMO. Didn't mm. you? That was when you're weighing up options. That was mm. one of your options. <laughs> well, like you, I didn't know there was such a thing. Um, no. Yeah. And, and I had a, a recurring dream actually for many years. It's only fairly recently stopped where I would dream that, and now I know, I, I basically, here's a PMO dream, where I mm. would say, well, I'm not going, you know, I'm not going to be serving this capacity anymore. Um, I'm going to go on what we call root calls, you know, which um, okay. were regular return visits where you just take the magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I guess that essentially, yeah. That, and, I, and from time to time, I would, I would play with that idea and think, what would it be like if I, and went back to that because it would make life so much, um, if not easy, at least I would sort of have that warmth of the community that I'd, mm-hmm. I'd lost, which, um, yeah. So I think, I think that's right. It's, uh, I guess it's something that a lot of people before they leave actually become. That's right. Yeah. It is a phase. Yeah. And in the book too, I don't present it as like a recommendation by sure. any means, but it's what happened to me when I, personally uh, um, drew that line in the sand of I I was going to limit the power of the organization that, Mm. that somehow ruled my life um, because of decisions I had made in the past. And I was going to draw the line and I was going to say, well, I will not be separated by my family from this organization. And um, from there, I then had to figure out, well, what I was, what am I going to do now to maintain my own psychological independence, not be drawn back into um, the thinking and the thought reform, Mm. but also to, you know, to maintain my space and to maintain my relationship. So it's just something that I explore. And the reason that I speak out about it, as, as I've mentioned, is again, to just show that there's some reality to this this accusation of captivity. Sure. Um, I, I don't know whether you've come across uh, Viktor Frankl's work and um, mm. um, uh, work on things like um, resilience, um, but there's a, there's a concept um, that I really love. It's, it's called bricolage. I don't know if you've come across bricolage. Mm-hmm. So bricolage was like a, it's, it's from a, an old French term, 
for these guys who would basically they were they just sort of scraped together bits and bobs you know to make stuff that was actually really usable but it came to me in this idea of being able to cobble together um whatever you've got at the at the time that you can use to and it's it's been used in terms of identity formation and the way you talk about what you're doing now um or certainly in the book um i i feel like you've become a bricoleur you've hmm. you've managed to be able to identify some meaning and purpose in your current situation and um i mean i find it quite inspirational really that you're thinking you know actually these are little things i can do to help individuals within this organization and maybe you're talking about the minority influence there maybe things i can do within this within this organization that that can actually make a difference and i appreciate you you uh you don't rule out stopping doing that at some time and and um, whether that's a permanent thing may not be but um i think whilst you're in that situation that feels like that's what you're doing you're kind of finding a a way to make sense of your life i don't, I don't know whether you recognize that or yeah yeah the expression that robert lifton uses because he because he talks about um, ideological totalism and thought reform communities mm. and all these different elements. Um, but he also talks about the antidote to that, which is proteanism, he calls it, which yes. it sounds very similar to what you're, you're mentioning mm. there with the bricolage. It's, you know, proteanism is like you're the shape-shifting character. It can feel duplicitous at first. Mm. Um, but when you realize that we often do that in uh, employment situations or when we have to present a certain way, we keep our internal sort of person intact. Yeah. Um, and then we present in a way that affects the change that we want. Moving beyond that, um, Buddhist philosophy would have you deconstruct yourself completely and, and simply present in different instances mm. to affect whatever result that you want. Yeah. So, mm. um, yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting journey, but uh, I think we're all on that path uh, in mm. a sense. Absolutely. And you, you've mentioned about Robert Lifton's work a few times. Um, it's a it's a really important piece of work, and he's influenced a lot of cult research. He talks about eight different sort of criteria for a totalist organization. I, I don't expect you to go through them all, but um, are there any there that you think are, are particularly relevant to Jehovah's Witnesses? The one that comes to mind is the use of language. So Lifton calls it loading the language. Mm -hmm. And he termed this phrase called uh, the thought terminating cliche. So this is when an expression is used that just ends conversation. Because you yeah. know that if you go, if you challenge that expression, you're challenging the authority that delivered it. Um, so in the book, I talk about, you know, well, the expressions Jehovah's Witnesses use, like, as long as you don't leave Jehovah, mm. you know, well, what do they mean by that? You know, you can do whatever you want, but if you leave Jehovah, your family member is saying, that's it. You know, that's the line in the sand. <laughs> so, and, and there's a lot of funny ones like that. Um, the chariot is, is on the move. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a way of saying things are changing. You don't know why Oversight's making this change. You may not agree with it logistically or theologically, but the chariot has moved and you need to change your thinking. Um, so those, you know, they're just part of the, of the lexicon as a Jehovah's Witness, but they, mm. they stop thought. 
And beyond that, you are just not permitted to have a dissenting view. So that's that's one. Um, and then, of course, the restricted informational milieu. And particularly, too, I think the cult of confession is one of the, uh, Lifton's elements. Uh, so I know that I experienced this really sort of emotional, um, fear-based inclination, urge, um, because you've gotten into this habit of, of confessing your sins to elders, um, to then also speak about your dissenting views now and to sort of get some catharsis from telling the elders. And so that pull is strong to confess, um, within the organization. It means that everybody's dirty laundry is out there and there's this sort of forced intimacy in the group. Mm. Um, Lifton says no secrets, no self, right? Yes. There's no individual self. If one cannot have secrets and privacy, you know, mm. th those things are healthy for individuals. Uh, you, you paint a really, um, there's a, a section in your book that is actually quite heartbreaking really when you describe how a fairly innocent, um, naive Jehovah's Witness might go to the elders, you know, they, they feel guilty about something, they've perhaps done something fairly minor or they've had some thoughts or something, and they go to the elders thinking that they're going to get some help. You know, before they know it, they're, they're being dragged into a judicial hearing and, and you know, without really realizing it, they're, they're, they're outside the organization within a matter of weeks. And that, that is particularly tragic. Yeah, it really is. Because if you've been an elder, I think you lose this perspective because you're constantly in that mm -hmm. uh, doling out of discipline. Um, but you forget how little the rank and file really know about um, the, the rules. Yeah. They are privy to it to a certain extent because there are publications that outline it, but they forget. They're not re reminded. Yeah. But they are reminded that if you feel guilty, you can approach the elders and a scripture in James is used where the elders will lovingly pour oil on your head and your <laughs> sins will be forgiven and you'll be <laughs> reconciled with God, which is mm. a beautiful concept. That's what happens in uh, therapeutic relationships too, when your confidence is kept. But what happens is unexpectedly then they have crossed a, a, a rule that they didn't know, um, you know, maybe it's an entrenched, some sort of entrenched practice and the elders are doing this arithmetic. Well, you know, what was the extent of the wrongdoing and then how long you think of uh, somebody's viewed pornography and it's uh, homosexual pornography, which in the organi organization's mind is, is even more debased. Oh, but now they've been doing it for nine months. Um, and it was accompanied with masturbation. So, so this increases the gravity and the individual had no idea that this this was the case and, and then confined themselves in a judicial committee. And, uh, you know, I know of people who have ended up disfellowshipped and even if they return, that disfellowshipping for the period of time, whatever it is, six months to a year, can have ongoing, yeah. you know, mental health outcomes. You know, they still deal with with anxiety and panic attacks because of, of that yeah. whole grueling, um, inhumane process. There's something you talk about, a psycho-spiritual journey um, mm. in your book. And that sounds a lot like this podcast to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of like that. You started your learning. What is it? The two of you started your learning at the same time. Mm. You know, you're roughly the same age. You say. That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you have the, all these questions, don't you, when you leave, you know? And um, 
you, I think you talk about things like career and things like uh, relationships and all of these, um, I guess what you think about God and whether you think God exists and, uh, and um, there's all these questions, I guess, that, that, that you now have access to ask. Um, how did you find that? Obviously you've been through that it, from, from talking to you, from reading your book. It, it sounds like you've done a lot of that. Um, so tell us a little bit about that journey. What's that been like? It was extremely painful. Um, anybody that has been a Jehovah's Witness knows that the relationship with that you have with God, with Jehovah, is extremely emphasized. It is your number one thing. If you've given up privileges or, or should I say, opportunities uh, outside of the organization, career, notoriety, mm-hmm. higher education, financial, you've given up opportunities, you've given up, made sacrifice, but your share is with Jehovah. Jehovah, you know, you are in this special sort of bosom position with God. He is your best friend. Mm -hmm. So deconstructing that idea of Jehovah, and I think particularly because of being raised with only one God, there wasn't Mm -hmm. like I had a previous God. Yeah. So giving up that relationship, which, you know, God is the first person that you pray to when you wake up, the, the last person you speak to before you go to bed, um, left a gaping hole. So at first it was very, very painful to give that up, you know, and then I had to go through this phase where, you know, maybe I kind of believed in God, but I had to forgive him for the pain that he was causing, Mm -hmm. uh, before I could ultimately let go of, of my God concept and explore other forms of spirituality. Um, and so at first it's very painful shuffling that doing that deconstruction work is very Mm -hmm. hard, you know, and then it, it, it sort of morphs into, this curious exploration of the world around you, hmm. which is appears to me to be a very balanced psychological state, which is this, um, it, it is the opposite of the rigidity of fundamental fundamentalist religion is the entropy of ongoing psychological and spiritual exploration. You meet a new person, you see their, their perception of the world. You mm. you read about a new religious or philosophical point of view and you incorporate into your, you're taking fragments of it and you're creating what is your own. Um, is a very liberating journey. It's a beautiful journey. Mm. And uh, dis- despite the challenges that it brings, if you're in a closed community. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in your observations on this, um, Jeff, because I I feel that, Jehovah's Witnesses are different to many other types of fundamentalist sort of evangelical groups in that they, and you allude to it in your book, I think, they they do encourage a more um, sober, critical reflection on evidence and facts. Um, so when it comes to things like evolution or when it comes to things like biblical uh, prophecy or doctrine and so on um of course there's once the society make up their mind about what the truth is then you've got to follow it but they do expect you to kind of logic it through Mm -hmm. and um they i think there is an intellectual element to it unlike what i see in some churches where it's all happy clappy and just having Mm -hmm. a great time and feeling the spirit and and getting emotionally carried away 
You don't see that in congregations of Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not getting emotionally carried away. They are standing there or sitting there reading books and debating, not debating, that's a wrong word, but um, discussing doctrine and scripture. Um, So it's not appealing to that emotional side. Um, And I find that quite very contradictory in many ways because it it opens up. And I I feel like this is where I, I actually started to do my critical thinking was, you know, I I did actually do what they told me to, you know, try to prove it for yourself, make the truth your own and all of that. And I see that as quite a dangerous thing for Jehovah's Witnesses to encourage. (laughs) That's right. It's a bit ironic. I think in the book, I say it it almost implies that leadership cannot see the logical fallacies in their own arguments because they say, you know, hey, we have the truth. If we have the truth, go ahead and investigate it. Of course, they will direct you only to internal documentation. And then they will say everything else is uh, potentially manipulated by Satan. And that's the the sort of snafu there. And I was in the situation where I would just reread and reread internal literature. Hmm. But even in doing that, it it starts to fall apart on you. Hmm. Um, Interestingly, I think you would find that more recently, um, there is less of that intellectualizing. Okay. Um, I, I am sensing a shift with JW Broadcasting, with the translation work now in an impressive number of languages uh, across the globe, it is forcing forcing a little bit less of that intellectual depth mm-hmm. in favor of a, an emotional experience. Um, and I'm noticing that shift. Um, and for many who did love to, were drawn to that intellectualizing, mm-hmm. um, there's a bit of a, a gap there. Um, yeah, so that that seems to be a bit of a cultural shift there. I'm noticing, you know, back in the 50s and, and earlier, there was you know these big yeah. thick books of 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 theological argument, but a little less of it now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not quite that old, but I do remember the, um, you know, the big books on the Tuesday book study, the Babylon book, and um, mm-hmm. and and those sorts of. They yeah. don't do those midweek studies anymore. No, they, they don't, don't do, do that those, anymore. So. No. Yeah. No, things do seem to be changing. I've I've been quite shocked by what I've seen of the broadcasts and so on. It doesn't seem like the same organisation that that I left. But then it is, you know, the the chariot is on the move. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, you know, things change. Uh, yeah, uh, we need some of those damaging, you know, policies to be to be altered. That's that's yeah. really you know what what we need to have changed. So we talked about emotional labour in the podcast recently. I mean. The emotional labor has got to be different when you're um pimo right so you're sitting there the kingdom smile was brought up i mean mm-hmm. how do, how do you muster the kingdom smile or do you <laughs> or do you just try and sit there stoically and just try and not give it away like um well there is a power in authentic expression right there there is an incredible human power when what you feel is exactly what you express. And I think that is the goal of creating genuine human relationships and intimacy with people. And it carries with it a power. It it really does because you can look at a person who is incongruence, whether they're happy or sad, and you can tell that it's legit. And then of course you can tell when somebody is not. So, um, and I thought, you know, because I listened to that episode about emotional laboring, the thing that with Jehovah's Witnesses is when, not only are they told to be nothing but joyful, hmm. um, but individuals will internalize this shame of be of lacking faith hmm. if they cannot muster that. So we all have limited 
um, depending on where we are in the scale of introversion and extroversion, we all have this limit to where we can no longer be sort of kind to people. We either have the opportunity of lashing out or scooting off into quietude and sure. rebooting, right? Um, and so I, I think that when you add this layer of shame that being by yourself, being sad is evidence of your lack of faith, that can really that can really be a problem. But, mm. but I found that being, uh, you know, I don't have to lie. I don't always have to talk. I can be just truly what I am as, as clearly as I can. Um, it does carry with it a power that, that can, that has created me some space to be myself, mm. um, and has limited the, um, aggression for lack of a better word. Of, of individuals trying to make me do more or be more involved or be somebody that I'm not um, just that in endeavoring to just be genuine in your, in your actions, you know, you talk about a superpower. Is that, is that your superpower? Uh, the Pimo superpower. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think more minority influence is, is such an incredible That's concept true. in those studies. You know, the fact that this, this um, deliberate insertion of yourself into a group of people that uh, may not see things as you do mm. um, can have, even if they reject you overtly on the back end, mm. can have an, an impact, particularly when you, when you show this immovability in your own stance. Uh, and when you don't defend yourself over much, you actually mm. convey this, the strength of, well, I don't really need you to agree with me. Mm. Um, this is just who I am. Mm. And that is a very powerful stance and mm. it can affect small changes. Uh, um, and this is a useful tool, I think, for a lot of social justice movements. And Absolutely. I think probably something that the politicians have mastered, you know, when they're really trying to, you know, make a specific change or what have you. So that's my superpower. If nothing else, and I, I cannot control the actions of others and mm. I don't attempt to, but I can maintain my boundaries in peace and those healthy mm. boundaries where, okay, this is the extent that I'm going to allow the questioning, the interrogation, the social influence. This is where I draw the line in the sand. Mm. And beyond that, it's going to be uncomfortable for both of us. So let's just <laughs> you know, agree to disagree kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I've kind of just got one more question. I don't know about you, Celine. Um, I, because we're coming up to the hour, we we don't like to keep our guests any longer than that. We think that's as much as we should expect in, in one go. Um, what are you talking but, about? I sit through I sit through two hour meetings three times a week. Are, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, I, I suppose I, I now and again, you know, I allow myself a little dream of what the organisation could be like. Um, do you ever allow yourself that dream? Can you ever see Jehovah's Witnesses um, shaving off those elements of of themselves that that fit them in that totalist bracket? Um, could you ever see Jehovah's Witnesses being um, a, a more healthy type of organisation? I think a lot could be do, done to limit the abuses um, in a way that protects the rights to freedom of religion for both mm. the disillusioned and the devout. Um, so if some of these uh, policies that are the most abusive are 
removed, then you would see people who truly want to believe that way exist. And you would see individuals who didn't want to believe that way would not face the repercussions. Mm. And it would also undo a lot of the coercion, right? Um, Mm. People would be able to truly make a decision, you know, do I want to die from refusing a blood transfusion because I truly want it. Well, when coercive fear is in there, fear of ostracism, it clouds the judgment mm-hmm. and it makes it less of an individualized decision. So I could see it. And, and that's the appeal that I make in my book, you mm-hmm. know, the, that open letter to the governing body that I include, which is, you know, make some adjustments here uh, to expand the, you know, the borders here and mm. to, to really undo the border. Um, and that is hard to imagine when you've been, when you've experienced such pain because of it. Um, it's, it, it takes a lot to take that step back and say, okay, well, if we got rid of this, what would happen? Well, it probably would lead perhaps to a growth. It, it, mm. it could even lead to an increase. Mm. Um, not that that's my concern, but it, it could happen Hmm. Um, in that it would take a step to progressiveness. Um, it could also lead to um, more people being freed of, of that environment. So it's hard to say what it would, but um, you know, I think that some theological arguments could be made to reduce some of those policies. Um, my hope is that it can be done internally, but you know, it may need to be regulated by a mm. higher authority. And I think that's, um, that could be the way that, that what needs to be done at this point. Mm. I know you've, um, you've made some, um, comments or you've, um, you've highlighted some elements to the, the paper that I wrote. I know you're, you're a writer on medium, which you write some fantastic stuff on there as well, by the way, oh, uh, people need to read that as well. Um, but I talked about how organizations are influenced by external entities um, from sort of organizational psychology theory. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's quite an interesting area. And it seems that organizations like Jehovah's Witnesses don't respond to normative pressures. So they're not going to look at other organizations and think, yeah, that's how they handle, um, accusations of sexual abuse. I think we should do the same, Mm -hmm. you know, they just don't do that. So it seems to me that, yeah, some external, authority might actually be welcomed by many of Jehovah's Witnesses. You get that feeling with blood as well, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it might, it might need to be. And just, you know, shining a light on, on the abuses and and more people speaking out about their stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I work a little bit with the guys that I got out. Um, I got out.org. And so their, their big thing is just a platform for people to tell their stories. And uh, the more people talk about it, you know, the more, um, more people will be aware that there's, there's a real danger here uh, beyond just the sort of creepy nature of losing oneself in a cult. But, mm-hmm. um, the, just, as I say, demonstrative mental health, negative mental health outcomes, particularly upon disillusionment. So yeah, my, my hope is that some of that regulation happens. If it doesn't mm-hmm. happen internally, that, that externally we can, mm-hmm. you know, we can see that happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Hour. Thank you. I, I just could carry on for, for another two hours. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, if you're willing, if you're able to come back again at some point, um, 
Jeff, it would be absolutely fantastic to have you back on again. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love the podcast. Great. Love what you guys are doing. Um, The book's fantastic. Um, For anybody that um, hasn't read it yet, it's only been available for a couple of weeks, I think. Um, That's right. A Voice from Inside, Notes on Religious Trauma in a Captive Organization by Jeffrey Wallace. It's um, on Amazon. Um, I guess is on other platforms as well, I guess. Uh, it's on Amazon right now, and the audiobook will be on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes in Great. probably a couple of weeks from now. So, you know, by the beginning of September, you'll be able to listen to it. So that's, that's definitely a must, uh, a must read or must listen. So, yeah, thank you very much again for your for your time, for your insights. Yeah, thanks, um, Stephen. Thanks, Celine. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production.